Hey, this is Scott Walker in another edition of Freedom Fighters. This week, you know, it's an interesting time. Um, I'm participating uh, this week on, on Friday at the March for Life with students, not only from Young America's Foundation, with the AF students, uh, but also proud to be on the board of Students for Life America and being part of the National Pro-Life Summit, of which YAF will be there as well. But it's the Students for Life, really the leading force. Remember two years ago before... Uh, the pandemic, uh, being at the march and then going at speaking at the National Pro-Life Summit. What a great group of students from all across the country. Certainly brought back memories for me at the march because in January of 1987, I was in my freshman year at Marquette University, was involved in a group called Marquette Students for Life. Uh, a number of us came out to the march. It was particularly memorable that year because it snowed so much. And anyone who's been to Washington or the D.C. area knows that even a little bit of snow uh, wreaks havoc on the city. But in this case, it actually was a lot of snow. Uh, if you look at the March for Life's website and their history of the march, they actually talk about January of 1987 uh, because it snowed so much. But yet there was still a massive crowd there. The only thing it did to us was it made it harder to get around and, and eventually harder to get out. I think we stayed for a number of days beyond our original departure date, had to miss a couple classes until we could safely fly back to Milwaukee. Uh, but it was a memorable time marching. I remember being out uh, on the grounds uh, not too far from the White House. And because of the storm and everything else, President Reagan wasn't physically there. But he called in and, and gave a really a, a very monumental defense of life. And, uh, of course, I was always a big fan, as I am today, of our 40th president, Ronald Reagan. But between that, the march uh, going up to the Supreme Court, little we know back then in 87, that was about a, a decade and a half after the infamous Roe v. Wade decision. And here we are many decades later, although it's an encouraging time. We are on the cusp of a pro-Roe uh, generation, uh, a pro-Roe era where we look at the Dobbs decision and whether it's in that case, although it's very likely, I think, I'm not a lawyer, but from observers of the court, it seems like this would be a logical case uh, for Roe v. Wade uh, to be thrown on the ash heap of history. Uh, but whether it's that or some case in the near future, I think the table is set. While Chief Justice Roberts is the Chief Justice, I, this has clearly now become a Thomas court. And I think if you look at that makeup, particularly with uh, the latest edition with Justice Barrett, uh, this is a court that understands. I mean, there's there's a couple elements. This. I remember talking to Ed Meese about this uh, when the Dobbs decision was out. He wrote a great piece uh, on this at the time. I think it was printed in The Washington Post about the legal, legal ramifications about why Roe v. Wade was just wrong. It's important for people to remember, though, I, as, as someone who's not an attorney, who, who believes in that assessment from a legal perspective, but who looks at the larger picture, I think one of the biggest takeaways we need to think of at this time, at this moment in history, is that the likely outcome should the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, pull back, throw out, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, is that it will, it will eliminate that erroneous decision if that were to happen, but it doesn't mean that abortion will be illegal in America. What it means is the decision as it was prior to 1973 will be back in the hands of the states. 
governors and state lawmakers across the nation will have to make decisions. In many states, like mine, for example, in Wisconsin, there is a law. There's, there's still on the book a law uh, that uh, makes it illegal for abortion. It hasn't been enforceable uh, because of the Roe v. Wade decision. But there are a significant number of states that have... Um, either laws that were in place before or laws that would go into effect uh, if the Supreme Court decision were changed. Uh, there are other states that are debating them, discussing them, and then there are some states like California and New York State that probably would go the opposite direction. In fact, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has talked about how um, if the laws in, for example, Mississippi was upheld, uh, that uh, not only would they claim to be a haven for abortion, which is odd you think about saying we want you to come to california so you can be safe in killing your unborn child uh kind of a bizarre uh statement to make but they did get a step further they actually said they'd pay they'd help provide uh, cover the cost uh, of people to travel uh to the state of california so you can see in america there will clearly be extremes and that's one of the points i want to spend just a few minutes talking more in depth about because something i wrote about uh, this week in the washington examiner uh, a more in-depth uh, column about this idea that it's not enough just to win the legal argument. We, we, winning in the court of law is incredibly important because right now uh, many of these laws, many of these rules, many of these regulations are prohibited under the, again, the erroneous Roe v. Wade decision of the past. And if that were altered, it would open the door, but it would only take it from the court of law to the court of public opinion. And I think that's something that's incredibly important, particularly uh, for elected officials all across the country at the state level. People who run for the state legislature, people who run for governor, people who run for other statewide offices need to be mindful that in a post-roll era, you've got to do more than just fill out a survey that says you're pro-life. You've got to do more than just say you think Roe v. Wade was a bad decision. Now we've got to make the case. We've, we've got to win in the court of public opinion. And that means we've got to learn to shift our argument away from just the legal battle, which is not insignificant, but to the moral case for this. And we've got to do it in ways that are compelling and telling stories. I think there's a tremendous opportunity. One of the things we saw two years ago, almost to the day, uh, two years ago, when then Virginia Governor Ralph Northam was in a radio studio, much like the studio I'm in today, uh, and one of the questions came up, it was about a piece of legislation that a member of the House of Delegates in Virginia was pushing. And it was a radical thing that was really a live birth abortion, uh, allowing for live birth abortion in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And Northam, who's got training as a doctor, so it's even more remarkable uh, when you consider what he said. But he said on this radio show that they said, well, what would happen? And and. I don't even think thinking about this, certainly didn't think about it politically. He said, well, the child would be set aside. It would be made comfortable. And then the doctor and the family would decide what to do next. Remarkable statement. Remarkable statement. Think about it. It basically is saying that even after the child was born, they could still make a decision to retroactively abort that child. And what they're talking about, be clear, to be, to be honest, is overwhelmingly the situations would be where there was a, a serious disability but for everyone who's got a child for everyone who's got a child who's who's living a wonderful life with a disability they understand there's there, i think of my friends the duffy sean and rachel duffy they've got nine kids their ninth child was born with a disability and a heart condition 
not only do those, those two as parents, but their children, Evita, their oldest daughter and others have talked about this, how their youngest child, the, their youngest sibling is, is by far the spark of their life, the one that gives us the greatest love and the greatest joy. Parents and siblings and family members repeatedly say this, but, but that aside, just the, the gore of saying that a child is born, the baby will be set to the side, made comfortable. Why, why would you make something that's not a human being? Why would you make something that's just, you know, as some would say, just a, a glob of tissues? Why would you need to make them comfortable? Well, the reality is because it's a human being, not even just an unborn, in this case, an actual live birth. And they're, they're talking about taking the life of that child. As I've said before, if you waited a few hours later, eventually went home from the hospital and decided to end the life of that child, in every state in America, there'd be some sort of a penalty related to homicide, some degree of homicide of taking that life. It would be murder. So why is it not murder while it's happening there at the hospital or at the clinic or wherever it might be? It is. It is. And that's something we need to be more powerful about making the case. One of the, the most amazing things that came out of that wasn't just the outrage on the right, but the shifts that you saw. The two biggest groups in the polls that were taken after this story got national attention were young people, young people, not just conservatives, not just Republicans, but, but young people who could see the horror of this concept. And the other group that moved the most were self-described Democrat voters. People who bought into this lie, it's, oh, you know, I'm a personally against abortion, but it's, it's not my decision. Well, you, when you can see this, this is a human being. This is a baby. Something's happening. I remember years ago on the floor of the Wisconsin State Assembly, a long, long time ago, my boys are 27 and 26. I still remember a, a bill we were debating. It came about because of a tragic situation where a pregnant uh, woman um, had, had gotten into a situation with her estranged wife, just an awful, horrible person he was. And he attacked her, and as part of the attack, not only severely injured her, in doing so killed the, her unborn child. And at the time, uh, one of the biggest frustrations for the prosecutor was that they could really only, under Wisconsin state statutes, charge for the battery against the mother, the battery against the estranged wife. And so uh, working with those prosecutors and others, I and others in the state legislature, uh, authored legislation, got co-sponsors, went forward, and um, allowed for charging more than just one crime. And, and I remember uh, during the debate, of course, those in opposition were saying, oh, you know, there's no need to do this. You can prosecute. Um, you, know, you, can, you can more than punish this person for the crime against this woman. And, and I gave a hypothetical, but it was very real to me because I in, inserted my own family in the hypothetical. Tonette and I, at the time of the debate, had our, our oldest son, Matthew, had just been bored. Um, not long after that, we found out we were pregnant with our second son, Alex. They're just a year, a month, and a day apart. And so I inserted us, just to be clear, this didn't really happen. This is a hypothetical, but to make it real in the debate, I inserted my own family as the hypothetical. And I said, imagine Tonette and I and our, um, our, our, our son, Matt, we're in our minivan. We were driving somewhere. Tonette's pregnant with, with our, our next child, and a drunk driver slams into the vehicle. And in doing so, seriously injures Tonette because he, in the hypothetical example, rammed into the pa passenger side of the minivan. 
seriously injures Tonette. She survives, but much, much like this real example that we had had of the estranged husband attacking uh, uh, his, his estranged wife, in that hypothetical, I said, imagine if Tonette lost our baby. I said, forget about the legal argument. Just think about this as a human being for a moment. What kind of a card would you send us? Would you send us a get well card? Because obviously, Tonette, in that hypothetical example, was seriously injured. Or, as a human being, not as a politician, not as a legal expert, would you send us a sympathy card? For the assembly was silent. You could see the looks all across the chamber as people thought about this. Just as a decent human being, I think most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, would send that family in the hypothetical example a sympathy card. Why? Why? Because I think we all understand that in that hypothetical example, that mother, what happened to her is more than just serious injury caused by a drunk driver ramming into the minivan, but rather they lost an unborn child. We need to be prepared, particularly for those either serving in state government or seeking to serve in state government, need to be prepared to share those sorts of stories. And there's example after example after example. One of the members of my team just adopted a, a beautiful baby boy. After years of trying to conceive, uh, God bless them with this opportunity to adopt a child. There's so many examples of this. In fact, it, it makes me crazy when I hear from those who oppose the pro-life position that, oh, you're only pro-birth. You don't care. Actually, the data overwhelmingly shows. It's one of the things I'm proud of being on the Board of Students for Life is our students across the country, and not just our students, but so many pro-life activists go out there and they don't just make the case for keeping that child alive. They go out and they raise money and donations to get diapers and clothing and food and assistance and oftentimes help put people up. Uh, I've been involved in a number of crisis pregnancy centers in Wisconsin and across the country. And again, they do more than just make the case for the unborn child. They often help uh, people find housing. Occasionally, in some instances where there's uh, domestic violence issues, help them get to safety. The people who care about life care about life, not not just for the moment of birth, uh, but for a beautiful, healthy baby and mother and family and all that's a part of it. So oftentimes help, oftentimes help with job assistance and job placements uh, for not only the mother, but if there's father or other family members involved, just incredibly important. This is an issue that's going to be increasingly important. Uh, not just because the issue of life itself. I mean, you know, the Declaration talks about all of us being created equal, that God has endowed us, has given us these rights, that they don't come from government, but they come from God. There are many, but amongst the most important are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't get anywhere without life. And, and so we're going to need to share that. And we're going to need to be uh, unapologetic in, in our ability to share that, um, I remember a great example of this. When I was first running for the state assembly, I'm knocking on a door and the voter comes out and says to me, what do you think about women's reproductive rights? And I said, well, you know, sir, I, I, um, I respect your, your position, or at least what it appears to be your position, but I, I need to be honest with you. I'm, 
I'm pro-life. My wife and I are pro-life. It's something we've thought and talked and prayed quite a bit about. We, when I, I, I just think about an unborn child, uh, I understand there's difficult situations, but in the end, I'm going to side with protecting life. <laughs> the voter looked at me and he said, you passed the test. I said, shook my head and said, what? He said, well, you know, politicians come by all the time and they kind of pander to whatever they think your position is. So I wanted to know if you truly believe this, even when you were threatened, even when you thought someone might disagree with you, even might react viciously against you. And I can't guarantee, particularly for those listening who might be running or in office right now or running for office in the future, that you're going to get every voter like that. I've had voters who didn't agree with my position. And the best I could do was tell them honestly where I stood and tell them that they deserve to hear the truth. And maybe there are other issues we agreed on. But on that one, that was my belief. And, and uh, I respected theirs, but I was going to stand for life. I just think it's going to be incredibly important for people to share on a personal level. It's for years, people running for the state legislature have gotten by just filling out surveys for pro-life groups. And that's important. And that's good. And it's good to know where people stand, but they really haven't had to defend it. And this is something where we've got to get personal. Maybe it's someone in your own family. Maybe it's someone, you know, maybe it's someone at church, even telling experiences. Like I remember pointing out when Matthew, our firstborn, when we had our first ultrasound, the image that we have today is nothing like the technology today, but the image that we still have, that first baby picture, we call it, that ultrasound image where he was turned on his side, we could see his hand out, you could see the four fingers, you could see the thumb, and the thumb looked like it was in his mouth, and it looked like he was sucking his thumb, and I thought to myself, thank God my, my parents it instilled in me the wonder of the sanctity of life, but even if they hadn't, even if I was oblivious to it, at that moment, I don't know how you can deny. And even more so now when you can see these 3D images. When when my little grandnephew was born the beginning of October, I remember earlier last year when uh, Isabella would show me the, the images of little Levi uh, on the ultrasound, and now they're in 3D. It's just so amazing. It's undisputable. We hear all this talk over the last two years about science. Follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. Well, the science clearly shows that an unborn baby is a human being. Let's follow the science and protect life. Since 1973, some 63 and a half million, 63 and a half million children have been aborted, have been killed because of abortion in this country. Think about that. That's about the size of California and Texas combined. Just on an annual basis, you think about, we talk about work shortage, we talk about challenges, we talk about an aging population and the need for those to care for them. If we'd had all those people, what a difference it would make. But most importantly, just just one, not just 63 and a half million, just one of those lives is important enough to stand up and defend. That's what the march is about. That's what Students for Life is about. That's why I'm proud that's what YAF is about. We need to stand up and defend life. And we need to be prepared, not just to make the case in the court of law, as it has been the argument for decades now. And I'm increasingly optimistic that uh, that will change. But then it becomes even more important to make the point, to make the case in the court of public opinion. All too often, those of us on the right, we think and talk with our head, which is important to do. We shouldn't give up logic for feelings. But to win the argument, we've got to have both. We've got to lead from the heart, 
have logic that comes from our head, but tell stories that come from the heart that explain to people why this is not only logical, but why it's emotional, why this is the social justice issue of our time and why this Generation Z will indeed be the pro-life generation that sets things apart. I'm Scott Walker. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep fighting for freedom.